HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org conference. When you think of trade, what do you imagine? Perhaps two young kids exchanging chips for string cheese at lunch? Maybe a merchant on the Silk Road? Or an overworked Wall Street stock trader? The reality is the concept of trade has changed and expanded constantly since ancient merchants bartered for the first grain of salt. To define trade would be to make movement stand still, perhaps an impossible feat. This is the 100th episode of Meet and 3, and we're going big, bold, and breaking the mold. Over the next four episodes, we're talking everything trade. We're looking at objects, culture, people, ideas, and of course, food, to understand how our big, complex, globalized world came to be. Kicking off this mini-series, today's episode focuses on the background necessary for understanding trade, historic, economic, and cultural. We're throwing out our normal four-segment structure to dive deeper into the what's and why's of trade. And more importantly, how this behemoth of a topic shapes the culinary world we live in today. So I'm pulling into the local coffee shop. We sent Meet and 3 reporter Emily Kunkel into the field to do a little experiment. Gonna get a latte. Grande almond milk vanilla latte, please. I have 10 or 16 ounces. Uh, 16, please. Actually, do you have oat milk? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll do oat milk, please. Vanilla and oat milk? Okay. Is that everything for you? Yes, thank you. Well, 96. Vanilla latte. Thank you. Is, that, is this the Sumatra one? Or, you wanted a latte? Or no, yeah, I just want to want to know which bean, bean you use. That is the espresso blend. Okay. So I'm back in my car, and I did some, you know, keen observation. The oat milk was Pacific Foods, and then the vanilla syrup they used was that um, Tarani brand you see in a lot of coffee shops. And then their espresso machine was... Pavoni, 
the blend that the barista mentioned. I, I looked at the beans on the way out and I'm pretty sure it's a combination of their Peruvian bean, um, their Ethiopian and their Costa Rican. So I'm gonna go do some research, figure out where the, the vanilla and the oat milk are made and um, figure out where the espresso machine is. Emily's latte uses beans from three different countries, but when she digs a little deeper, it seems that even more places may be represented. Okay, so the oat milk was actually pretty easy to track down. Pacific Foods lists right on their website that they use local ingredients and that everything is grown either in Oregon or through their other suppliers on the West Coast. So considering that I'm in Pennsylvania, the West Coast isn't quite local, but it's still the U.S., so we'll take it. The espresso machine was also easy to find. The company, along with their production, is based in Milan. So now we're up to four countries, maybe five considering the U.S., but the syrup was a little tricky. I couldn't find any sourcing information on Tarani's website. The nutritional information says that they use vanilla extract, so I would assume that they would be buying that from Madagascar or Tahiti, somewhere that actually grows vanilla. I did try to email the company, but they never responded. Shocking. But it does make you wonder... Well, skeptical is maybe the better word. It does make you skeptical why some companies include their sourcing information and others don't. Five countries, over thousands of miles, to make this one cup of coffee. The average U.S. adult has visited three countries. Has this latte seen more of the world than they have? But let's think for a second. If Italians invented espresso, that means they must have had coffee beans. But coffee beans need a subtropical climate to grow. So how did they get to the Mediterranean climate of Italy? A little research tells us that coffee beans were first consumed in what is now Ethiopia. Coffee quickly spread north to the rest of the Arabian Peninsula when it was popularized through Persia, Egypt, Syria, and Turkey. Finally, the Italians up in Venice, one of the world's trade powerhouses of the time, caught on and began purchasing the beans from the Egyptians. This was all taking place in the late 1500s, a time when trade was exploding due to advances in technology and commercial routes. But these routes wouldn't have been possible without the trade network that started it all, the Silk Road. Beginning over 2,000 years before any Egyptian laid eyes on a coffee bean and stretching from China through Persia all the way to present-day Italy, the Silk Road set the precedent for the world's current web of exchange. There were Chinese in the east, the Roman Empire in the west, and of course Persian was at the center, as I mentioned before, uh, and looking both east and west. The kitchens of these three royal courts were famous for their love of food, or you can, we could say these days they were foodies. Najmia Batmanglish, Iranian-American chef and author of the cookbook Silk Road Cooking, A Vegetarian Journey, gets at the underlying point. Humans are constantly searching for new things. The idea of a foodie isn't a modern-day invention. Curiosity is innately human. Whether it's an idea, innovation, or in this case, food, we can't help being fascinated by things that are novel and exciting. The royal kitchens were famous. We have a lot of records. They really love foods, and there was a lot of exchange of ingredients between Chinese and Persians and Italian. Huge networks spanning thousands of miles sprouted across the globe. Peaches transported on the backs of camels made their way from China to Persia. 
Pasta techniques spread from Persia to modern-day masters in Italy and China. The Silk Road represents the first inklings of cultural exchange on such a global scale. In the culinary world, it was an opportunity for cultural fusion between cooking practices and novel ingredients. Vegetable, fruits, grains, and cooking technique pass from one region to another. And that's interesting that that region, that culture, absorbed that ingredient and transformed it, transformed that ingredient and all that dish into their own specialties. What ends up happening is the same sesame seeds get planted in several different places. And depending where they're planted, the culture, climate, and people, they grow up to have different characteristics. It's the reason so many cultures have their own version of savory dough from Mantu in China to Mandu in Korea to Manti in Turkey. So there's a unity and diversity. That's what, what has fascinated me, the cooking along the Silk Road. The diversity of dumpling is all they have. A piece of dough can be made with rice or wheat um, and has a feeling. And their name also is related, but uh, there is a commonality and diversity is because of the they absorbed and become a specialty of that region. So uh, the flavors uh, are according to the taste of the people of that region or availability of the, uh, like in Turkey, they put yogurt in, in Iran. They love yogurt also. So uh, some region in Iran, they used uh, cash, which is cooked yogurt. Mm, they add that as a flavor for their uh, for dumpling. So. It's, it's fascinating. Even foods considered central to the cuisine of a nation may be the result of trade. Like peaches originated in China, but introduced by Persians. So a lot of culture even referred as Persian fruits, but actually it was originated in China. And, and because of terroir, Iran makes very good peaches. As more and more merchants from different countries began trading with each other, technologies like paper, compasses, and gunpowder made their way across Eurasia. As transportation advanced, so did migration, introducing a whole new element of culinary exchange, an element that is now central to modern cuisine in any nation. The immigrations throughout the world, not just in America, throughout the world is the source of globalization uh, of food culture. Forty years ago when I wrote my first cookbook, Food of Life, I had pomegranate on the cover. And um, a lot of people asked me, what is this? At that time, most people didn't know about the pomegranate. These days, you can find them in supermarket as well as Persian cucumber, Chinese bok choy, Japanese mushi ice cream. American cuisine is built on the migration of people and ideas. From more contemporary immigration waves to historic colonization or the forced migration of slavery, American cuisine is shaped by the people moving through it. British colonists brought apple trees and even bees to pollinate crops. Now we have apple pie. What might be called American foods, like hot dogs and hamburgers, have roots tracing back to German immigrants. West African slaves brought one-pot meals and rice. Now we have gumbos and jambalayas. The list goes on and on. You could examine any wave of migration and identify a variety of culinary shifts that emerged from it. Coming up after the break, we'll dig into the economics of trade. Stay tuned. 
This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org slash conference. While the Silk Road created an explosion of culinary exchange, trade was first and foremost an economic investment by imperial powers. This was especially true a couple thousand years later when European explorers stumbled upon the Americas and their rich agricultural potential. Don Boudreau, an economics professor at George Mason University, who specializes in international trade, discusses just how far, physically and financially, people were willing to go to satisfy their gourmet cravings. It was a time in human history where black pepper was a luxury. And we know that because people were willing to invest huge amounts of money on, in expeditions to go to the Spice Islands and to go, to go to the Indies in order to get pepper. You know, stuff we take for granted now. It's, it's free on a, you know, you go into a restaurant, well, before COVID, and it's free. Trade flourished because it promised an abundance of once rare luxuries, indulged curiosities, and provided economic opportunities. But to spend money, you have to make money, making trade largely a business of the rich. With money and power comes privilege, and as history teaches us, this trifecta often leads to untold violence. Especially as the world entered the age of exploration in the mid-15th century, trade went hand-in-hand with imperialism and colonization. That latte Emily bought at the start of our episode costs a lot more than $5 when you consider the centuries of indigenous genocide sewn into coffee and vanilla production. It's all too easy to sugarcoat the technological and cultural exchange that flourished through these early trade routes while glossing over the greed and gluttony it also enabled. This violent history is still embedded in contemporary trade, but gone are the days of conquests for peppercorns and traveling to the seaport for the newest shipment of cinnamon. Modern trade is a monolith, invisible and often not understood by everyday consumers. Our current system relies on increased globalization and interdependent webs and networks of movement covering land, air, and sea. Let's take a deeper dive into the economics of trade to demystify some of its structural elements. Trading is how we survive. If you think of your own life, what you consume on a daily basis, and I'm sure this is true for everyone who's hearing our voices today, uh, none of us made any of the things that we consume. We didn't make the clothing on our back. We didn't make the furniture upon which we sit. We didn't certainly didn't make the electronics that we're using now. How did we acquire these things? We acquire them through trade. Trade is surprisingly it's not only fundamental 
to human existence. It is essential to human existence. It is one of the things that defines us as a species. The products people exchange and the rate at which they trade is determined by a little thing called specialization. Even though it was developed over 200 years ago, this concept is foundational to the structure of contemporary trade networks. Let's throw it to our Meet and 3 producer, Alicia, to figure out how this really works. Okay, so let's say we have a pizza assembly line, like uh, Little Caesars or Domino's or whatever pizza shop. So you have employees at the pizza shop. Person A is really good at making the pizza dough, rolling it out, etc. Person B is really good at adding the sauce. Person C with the cheese and person D with the pineapples. There are no other toppings at this pizza shop. And so at the very end of this line, you have a full pizza. So in this scenario, our pizza shop is the world and our pizza employees are the countries and each of their specialties is one piece of a final product. Some countries, like the person in charge of dough in our pizza shop, have more power than others. Our world, like many workplace situations, is full of conflict. So you can guess what happens. So now, let's say, dough man and pineapple guy have a fallout, and suddenly this person whose entire job was to put pineapple on pizza is out of work solely because dough man was like, you need to leave, and he has more power, so pineapple man has to leave. So there you have it. Bam. Dough man wins. But at what cost? Now suddenly there are no more pineapples in the store because of this personal feud. And while Dough Man gets what he wants, got Pineapple Man out of the store. He's happy. It's the customers, who had no say in this particular fight, that are deprived of pineapples on their pizza. So while Dough Man gets what he wants, the customers ultimately pay the price. So you might have guessed that in the real world... What Dough Man did to Pineapple Guy was to institute a sanction, or a penalty. This is when trade gets messy. One country can decide to punish another for whatever reason. A power struggle to top GDP charts, security threats, a government's treatment of citizens. Maybe they block trade completely. Maybe they impose tariffs. Or maybe they have extra restrictions just for that country. The bottom line is while the governments quarrel, it's the citizens who pay the price, sometimes literally. One of the direct results of tariffs is that they raise the prices of specific goods, so instead of countries, individuals often end up being the most impacted by trade. The farmer loses their job, the restaurant spends more for that gourmet cheese, and quality can drop. On the opposite side of the spectrum from tariffs are subsidies, when the government lends an extra hand to their own producers, usually through financial aid. Which sounds great, right? The government should help its own citizens. But... From the perspective of a free trade purist, back to Don. When companies get special privileges, they get lazy. If you're protected, if you're a competitor protected behind a tariff wall, or if you can depend upon subsidies, you don't have to be quite as attentive to the quality of your product. You don't have to be quite as attentive to the efficiency of your production. And so over time, both tariffs and subsidies cause those companies or those industries that are protected by the tariffs or that receive the the subsidies to become less efficient, to become less responsive to consumer demands, to become less innovative over time, despite the fact that these 
policies are typically sold to the public as ones that improve the efficiency of the domestic producers in, in those lines of work. The predominant view among economists is that restricting free trade lowers citizens' standard of living. But things can get muddled in the transition from theory to reality. Countries have been protecting their citizens and domestic industries through trade interventions since the advent of international trade. Protectionist strategies are often used and justified during wartime. But even in the U.S. throughout the 19th century, high tariffs gave domestic manufacturers an extra boost while they worked to catch up with foreign competition, which ultimately helped create a global power. Other reasons for protectionism may fall outside of the economic equation for standard of living, such as the cultural importance of a specific crop or industry. Despite economists staunchly advocating the doctrine of free trade, the result can resemble a form of neocolonialism, which is when developing countries, often former colonies, are economically dependent on developed countries. This often plays out through the extraction of raw materials and inputs from underdeveloped countries that are then used to create finished products in developed nations. Like the name implies, neocolonialism is often about one country asserting power over another. Except instead of the physical nature of colonizing land, it uses seemingly invisible tactics like severely underpaying foreign workers or media defamation, inhibiting developing countries' ability to maintain sovereignty over their means of production. All of this is to say that modern-day trade, at its core, is about money. You don't need to understand specialization or tariffs to understand how the dumpling traveled thousands of miles, but it is helpful for understanding why the U.S. is the biggest exporter of corn. So as we delve into the past, present, and future, be sure to keep an eye on the money. Okay, that was a lot. So let's take a deep breath, maybe throw some cold water on your face, and don't worry, the next three episodes won't be this econ heavy. We've broken our series down into a nice Powerpuff Girls pun. Sugar, spice, and everything bites. First up, we've got a little surprise for the sweet tooths listening. We're talking chocolate, sugar, and a fruity surprise. The Coachella Valley growers wanted to tap into that romance of the Middle East by saying that their dates had all that history and ties to Cleopatra or King Tut, who, by the way, they discovered dates in King Tut's tomb. But they also want to tell consumers that they're different than the Middle East. Next, we turn to the Beyonce of historic trade, spice. We're going all the way back to the beginning with salt and then taking it contemporary with pepper. You know, spices were what we would light in fires to, to create incense for the gods. Like there's such, such a big and rich heritage over spices having these magical and mystical properties and so many stories that we had made up over time. And it's been really refreshing and fun to say, actually, here's where the spices come from. Finally, we end with a little potpourri. We've got small bites, animals that bite, and what happens when countries bite back. It's been a long time since Iran's been able to export pistachios to the United States. A long time. But they you know, have been able to export pistachios to Europe up until a few years ago. And don't worry, next week we'll be back to the meat and three segment structure you all know and love. So stick around as we embark on our own mini exploration. Thanks for listening to Meat and Three. Special thanks this week to Alicia Chen, Emily Kunkel, and Ryder Bell. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. 
Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, with additional sound design by Alicia Chen. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.